Our guest today is Melinda Wolf, former Chief People Officer, HR Consultant and Executive Coach. Melinda has served as Chief People Officer and led talent initiatives with a passion focused on diversity, equity and inclusion. She began her career in public finance at Merrill Lynch where she managed billions of dollars of project finance and public power transactions for public and private sector clients. She has held the chief HR role at private, private equity backed and public companies all with global reach and each at critical inflection points in their size and evolution. Additionally, Ms. Wolf has overseen social impact and corporate social responsibility efforts that have been a centerpiece of employee engagement efforts. In addition to her work in the private sector, Ms. Wolf holds several leadership positions in the non-profit sector. Currently, she chairs the board of Zana Africa Foundation and serves as a board member of Auburn Seminary, Echoing Green and Coquel. She previously served on the New York City Mayor's Commission on Women and on advisory boards for several academic institutions including the Dalton School, Bernard's Ethna Center, Duke University, Washington University, and the School of Public and International Affairs at Columbia. She received her undergrad degree from Washington University and her graduate degree at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. Welcome to our podcast series. Melinda, thanks for being here. I'm really happy to be here and honored to be here on International Women's Day. What a special day to talk woman to woman. Absolutely. This, this is such a special day and we're so happy to be talking to you today. Um, you have had such an amazing career and you've been the chief people officer, which really connects with a lot of our audience and some of the questions we've been getting. It, it's a great day to have a discussion on those. Is there anything that most of the people that know you from a professional perspective don't know about you? I am really an adventurer and I have a spiritual uh, bent to my adventure ism and I've done some things that have been quite um, wonderful and unusual. Um, I've gone for long fasts in the desert. I've done dream analysis going up the Nile. Um, I've been in the middle of Amazon with local tribes doing all sorts of crazy, fun, interesting and culturally appropriate things. So um, yes, I've had lots of adventures and I don't think because I have a serious side to me that people really know that I have taken risks like that and done unusual things. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. So you've been in Amazon, you were there with the local tribes. Anything interesting that you want to share, like something you've seen there that you usually won't see here in U.S.? Well, there's there are so many things. I mean, being in parts of the Amazon where you're with people who are indigenous and local, um, they consider the forest itself their medicine cabinet. And so, um, you know, you can walk around with somebody who's carrying a machete to walk through the forest and he'll find a really unusual thing like an ant or something and suggest that you take a taste of it. Or um, you will find that you sit down with a group of people and they are um, actually having what they do to welcome other people, which is um, a drink that everybody has 
chewed a substance and spit it back in and then shared it around the circle. So yeah, those have been complicated. I, I guarantee you. And, um, you know, again, when you're in a culture, you have to be really sensitive to what people are doing and what's important to them. And whether you pretend to drink it or whether you really do, they know what you're doing. So you, you really have to pay attention. But I love those kinds of adventures. Um, and they are, I mean, I, I, I slept out in the rainforest um, under a, you know, a basic tent. It was adventurous and I, I, I loved it and I learned a lot. And I don't think people think of me in that context. You said, you know, you have taken risks. Is there anything in your career where you have taken similar risks that don't pop up, people don't realize? Well, I think I've taken a lot of risks in my career. I've changed my career. I've, I've done very different things. And, and I can talk about that further. I think what people, I, I don't usually highlight unless there's an occasion to talk about it, is the fact that I worked very hard to achieve success early in my career. Um, I worked in an investment bank um, it, at a very young age. I became a managing director. I was really proud of that accomplishment. And then I turned a corner and changed what I did, but continued to work in financial services for a long time. And in that process, I made decisions about taking lower compensation, giving up my title, going to a lower title and then going to a lower title once again, only to come back to the title that I had left. So I look at life as a series of opportunities and the chance to really do something new and different and stretch myself in new ways. And that doesn't always follow a linear path. And so the risks I took were giving up compensation, giving up title, et cetera, to have great experiences. And I think those risks really paid off for me. You mentioned, you know, taking risks because you wanted something and it's okay to take a step down because that's actually helping you go clearly towards where your passion lies. Can you speak a little bit more about that? I think that's a really important step in one's career that we don't only move in linear ways that we have to listen to what is going on in our lives, what trends are going on in the world and make judgments about where is the best place for us at a particular moment and also how that fits into a bigger picture that can be many years ahead. Um, I have a very dear friend who has um, a game as she calls it called the decade game and she likes to think of her year her her life in 10-year increments and in advising me along my career she has always said um does that get you closer to what you want to do in the future and i think it's really important to recognize that you know the steps that we take might not get us closer right now, but might get us closer to a vision that we have over the long term and that we really have to weigh that out. So, so when you started, did you have a plan and did everything go according to plan? Yes, I did have a plan and nothing at all happened according to that plan. So when I was 
a good deal younger, I thought that I really wanted to be a journalist. Um, and that was something that I had pursued. I tried to study it in college and um, somehow I got diverted and I'm not sure where, but one of the things that I really took a passion to in college was learning about cities. And so I ended up leaving college and working for a nonprofit organization that was intent on creating livable cities across this country. And I did that for a period of time and then decided based on that to go back and study public policy and city planning. And I thought that my life was gonna be along the lines of that work. But when I got out of school, there was no work like that available to me. It was a public sector job I was looking for and it was a Republican administration in this country and there weren't really a lot of opportunities. And so I ended up at an investment bank of all places, um, which caused many people in my program to disown me because it felt like the biggest sellout. But my specialty in that work became housing and hospitals, um, interestingly enough, waste management, utilities, those kinds of areas. And that was really fascinating in a different way to operate around what were public sector considerations in a private sector setting. And I did that for quite a long time and loved it until one day something came over my desk that talked about the creation of an office of diversity at my company, which was Merrill Lynch at the time. And I read about this and it resonated with me wildly, like, wow, that's so interesting. I wonder what somebody in that job would do. And if I could ever do a job like that, it turned out that through networking and talking to a lot of people, I um, eventually worked my way into the Office of Diversity Strategy at Merrill Lynch. And that was really turning a corner for me, leaving a revenue producing role, going to something that was really a cost center in the firm, but really went right to my passions and interest and particularly the interest of advocating for women and underrepresented groups in the workplace. And um, I spent the next 25 years of my life doing something completely different than what I had prepared for and what I spent the first 15 years doing. Diversity and inclusion. So this was fairly new concept 25 or so years ago. It's more mainstream now. What differences do you see from the time you started to where we are today? Well, it's a really different field today. And um, I oftentimes joke about the amount of um, acronyms that are being used in this field, but what was once diversity then became diversity and inclusion, and then later became diversity, inclusion, and equity, and now is about diversity, inclusion, equity, and belonging. And all these things go together really beautifully. They uh, all are representative of many of the same ideas, but they are different facets of those ideas. So 
diversity is about difference and inclusion is really about looking at how people can all be part of something even though they come from different backgrounds. And equity becomes the discussion of whether everyone that is included has the same and equitable chance to advance and develop in their careers and in the world. And belonging is the ultimate embodiment of all of it, which is can you actually live into being your full self in your workplace? And that means feeling that it's okay to be different, that it is, um, there's no penalty for being different, that you will be fully and equitably treated and that you could bring every part of yourself to the workplace. So that has been quite a journey um, for most companies. I can't tell you that I think many do it very well right now. Um, even though we've had these cataclysmic moments in the past year or so, and that so many companies have been practicing these things for so many years, this is really hard work. It's evolutionary and it requires engagement more than just doing the window dressing. It requires people to work really hard to transform themselves and their outlooks and to think in new and different ways. Being a woman in this role, seeing to it that there's some kind of equity, did you personally face any situations where, you know, you had to kind of face the typical perceptions about women in workplace? Well, you know, if I, if I think back on the very early parts of my career as an investment banker, particularly in a field like um, solid waste management or utilities, these were areas where there were not lots of women, at least in my client base. I would oftentimes go and travel to places all over the country. Not only was I a woman, but I was a young woman. I was with lots of gray-haired men, and that was not easy. I could have been their daughter or their granddaughter in some cases. And so it was hard for me to feel like I was being taken seriously, even though I think in many cases, I had the, you know, kind of intellectual key to whatever it was that we were trying to create, the financings we were trying to do. That was not easy, uh, as it was not easy being a woman um, on Wall Street, because even though I was in a business sector that had more women. And I grew up with a lot of women who were influencers for me. Um, it was not usual in investment banks to see a lot of women in powerful places. So you might be able to look right and left and, and find people, but it was very unusual to be able to look up and see them. Do you have any role models um, that you look up to? So call on probably the typical shapers, um, which are my parents, my mother, who had um, tremendous tenacity and was, you know, the only girl in some of her business classes when she was yet a girl, when she was much younger. I looked to my dad, who had an amazing work ethic, a kindness and a compassion. But 
the people who really were my role models are a composite of a lot of different people. I mean, all along the way, I look for greatness in everybody that I meet and try to figure out what is special or what is the secret sauce in any human being and what I want to take from that and make my own in one way or another. Ultimately, I think the biggest shaper of my life was me. I mean, I made some choices that were really big choices in my career. I did not have a family that came from this background, knew anything about Wall Street, knew anything about diversity for that matter, etc. I mean, in some ways, I often say one of the reasons I ended up doing diversity work is I came from a very homogenous community where there were a lot of people like me. And I didn't really recognize difference until I left that community. And so it was almost in opposition to my growing up that I made choices of how to shape my life and create the diversity, which is really now very much at the fabric and the core of who I am. So yes, I, I believe that I was a self-shaper but I believe there were lots of influencers along the way, and they came in the form of my family and the values that they had, but they also came in the form of people that I met that I worked with, people along the way that were coming up in their own time. I mean, I remember first hearing Hillary Clinton speak, and I was bowled over that somebody could speak so beautifully and artfully without a note in front of her. It was just remarkable. And so I pick different parts of people as I go along in life and find the best and create a composite. And that becomes my role model. Based on everything you've seen, are there some core values that you really abide by? Well, I know for me, one of the most important values is integrity. That's just at the core who I am, which be a lot of different things, but to be straightforward and direct and honest are all part of that. Um, I would have to say, given what I've done for all these years, that um, equity and fairness is a core value for me. And um, I don't know if you could call it as such, but I think commitment. I am passionate and committed to what I do, and I think commitment's really important. Um, to keep with things even in the hardest moments. You have shown commitment. You started on the NGO path and then you have been you have been supportive of a lot of different organizations along the way. Can you speak a little about those organizations and what really made you um, get associated with them? Sure. Well, um, thank you for asking me about that because the nonprofit part of my life or the social impact work that I do is equally as important as so much of the diversity work that I've done as well. And quite honestly, my work in diversity took me down that path. I mean, as, as the chief diversity officer at a, a number of different organizations, I always thought it was important to affiliate with organizations that would really support the work I was trying to do in the workplace. So for example, I sit on the board of an organization called COPO, which used to be called the Center for Talent Innovation. 
a wonderful organization that has research-based work that helps create more um, performance-based workplaces that are inclusive and that's really focused on this notion of belonging. But I also do a lot of other work. Um, I sit on the board of a, an organization called Auburn Seminary, which um, really builds bridges across religious difference to leverage social justice issues. Um, I also sit on the board of Echoing Green, which is a fabulous organization in the birthplace of many well-known um, NGOs like Teach for America and City Year that really rewards and brings up um, social impact entrepreneurs and helps them develop their um, innovation and leverage it uh, and create a community of fellows around it. Um, I also chair the board of Zana Africa, which helps provide sanitary napkins to girls in Kenya and gives them educational materials to create more agency over themselves and their bodies. Um, and I'm really proud to be affiliated with an organization called Generation W, which also helps advance girls and women. So all of this work has been really important to me and given me a skill set which enables me to help a lot of nonprofits in their governance, in their recruiting, in their board building, and um, in actually achieving their missions. And I love that too. What a great cause. All, all of these are such incredible causes. Um, so thank you for doing this. This is very commendable. Thank you. If, if somebody's starting out new, you know, new in their career, and they really want to make an impact, they want to be associated with social impact projects, they want to be um, in a career that really helps them go more towards, um, you know, social justice, inclusiveness, what would your advice be for them? Where should they start? And is there like a set path? Or is there a specific starting point that would help them get there faster? Well, it's a good question. All of these things have different paths. I mean, being in a nonprofit career, um, you know, there's lots of different skills that you can um, develop and paths you can go in to get to that career, depending on what you've studied, what you've learned, what skill sets you bring. I think that's really different than the path to doing, for example, corporate diversity. And I can talk about that in a minute. But I, what I'd like to start by saying is the one thing I'm most proud about and I think has been really important is that when I got out of graduate school, I went and did a job where I learned a set of skills and actually generated revenue for a company. Now, you could talk about generation of revenue in terms of actually making money for that company. You can talk about it in the nonprofit context of fundraising, but actually being on the line to drive a result and a financial result is a great starting opportunity for anyone. And so my advice to a lot of women uh, and, and really to anybody is, go learn a skill and do something where you're actually going to be able to show a quantifiable result and impact in what you do. 
make sure you can measure that and make sure that you gain a skill from that because that will be a building block that you can use to do a lot of other work. So that would be one thing that I would say, no matter what you do, to do work in what is known as the field of diversity, inclusion, equity, and belonging today, um, I think requires a couple of different things. Number one, it requires life experience. So there are a lot of people who have lived really interesting lives and have had lots of struggles and have not been in the position of carrying privilege with them in their whole life. They have a lot to offer when it comes to working through some of the issues. But in order to really know how to put it in the context of a company, you really have to learn the company and its business. And that's why many companies hire people in the diversity role from within the company. Because you come in, you learn the company, you learn what it does, you learn the culture, you know the people, and then you can influence. So I think the path to doing that work is slightly different because I do think you have to enter in and then you can move laterally or vertically into a role like that. But when it comes to an NGO, I think if you bring passion and uh, curiosity and uh, a variety of different skills, you can work your way up into a lot of different organizations and there's a huge amount of need out there. Along the way, did you have any naysayers? I did. I had lots of them. I'll start from the beginning. I had naysayers in my parents who didn't want me to leave the community I grew up in. You know, you they circled an area for um, thinking about going to college and said, you know, within 400 miles, we have to be able to drive. So I was never, I was never really supported in going outside of that area to do any study, even on a global basis, to study outside of the U.S., which I always wanted to do, but I was never really given the opportunity to do that. Um, but I left, and I went, and I explored, and I've had a very global life, so um, I haven't let that stop me. Um, a lot of people also said, why would you leave a job in, in the investment banking world where you are making a good income, where you're working with great, smart people, where you're plugged in and having all sorts of opportunities, and then go work in an area of a company where you're no longer generating revenues, but you're actually a cost center. And again, I did that because I was following a passion, but also using the collected wisdom I had um, acquired over many years of being in a company and really being able to make a difference. And I think that it led to far more abundance in my life by listening to myself and not everybody else around me who said, stay and do what would be what what would have been expected in many ways so if you had to live your life again is there anything you would do differently you know i'm a pretty positive and optimistic person and i can find um a silver lining in anything and i also have um lived with 
so many gifts. I have a really wonderful husband who's been a great partner and who has been an adventurer along with me. I have referenced my family and how much I value them. I have a fabulous daughter who I'm close to and I admire and learn from her and I hope she still learns from me. But the one thing that I often say, and I say it to women all the time is this, when I was coming up in my career, people often said, you know, don't worry about having kids. You can do that. You can do that in your 20s. You can do it in your 30s. You can do it in your 40s. And um, one of my uh, champions in life, uh, a woman named Sylvia Ann Hewlett, who used to head the Center for Talent Innovation, she herself had, I think, her fourth child when she was in her 50s. So anything is possible, right? That's what I bought lock, stock, and barrel. And when I had my daughter, it, I had her with no problem and it was easy for me to get pregnant and I had a wonderful pregnancy and I loved every minute of it. And then when I was in my kind of mid to later thirties and I tried again, it was impossible for me to get pregnant. And I did everything. I did IVF, I did all sorts of different things because I really wanted to have another child. Um, and it didn't happen for me. Now, I'm really lucky. I have a fabulous daughter. I have a great family. And um, I've had a lot of fabulous things happen to me in my life. But if I have any kernel of regret, it's that it would be nice for my daughter not to be an only, for her to have had a sibling and somebody to, in some sense, rely on, be close to, be connected to. And so if I were to redo anything, maybe I might've started earlier. Maybe I would have had more urgency about the whole process. I think that's the only thing for me that's a form of regret, but I always, always tell young women, if this is something you want, and you're in a position to create it in your life, don't wait, go for it. Thank you for sharing that. So let's let's do something fun then. So if you had to go to Mars and you could only take two people with you, who would they be and why? Well, that's a really interesting question for me. And I have to say, after living for a year in COVID with my husband, I definitely bring him with me because he's been a wonderful partner and a lot of fun to be with, a lot of fun to cook with, to talk to, and he's been really easy to be with too. And if you're on Mars, you really wanna make sure you're with good company in that sense. I know my husband would be one of the people. And then I would have to say that the other person would have to be a woman no matter what, it could be my daughter, it could be one of my best friends, but it would have to be a woman because women fill my life with the most uh, positive of energy. And again, I could name one or two, or I could tell you that it could be a composite. I, I happen to be rewarded from top to bottom when it comes to having older women in my life who are just remarkable 
to younger women and my mentees being my greatest teachers. And so I would tell you that I'm not sure which one it would be. And if I could create a composite, it would probably be that because if I only had one, I'd have to create that composite, but it would definitely be a woman. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so in closing, before we leave, any final words for our listeners? What would your um, you know, final comments be? Well, first of all, you know, it's International Women's Day. So I can say that um, I feel very proud that I'm a woman. I feel very proud of where women have come. And I feel very sober about the fact that women have a long way to go. Um, that we are still fighting for the ERA in the US. Um, that we are still fighting even to keep our reproductive rights. I mean, there's so much work to do to make sure that women actually live the central lives they should be living and recognizing the remarkable influence that women can have in the world when it comes to collaboration, when it comes to communication and commitment and all those beautiful things that women bring. And I would tell women who are listening to this, if you're in a workplace that has lots of men around, yes, be tough. Yes, ask for what you need, but also realize that being a woman gives you the opportunity to bring so much goodness, positivity, collaboration, and a general transformation and that you should think of yourself as an agent of change by virtue of who you are as a woman. Wonderful words. Thank you so much, Melinda. It was such a pleasure having you today as our guest and thank you for your time. Thank you. It was really fun to talk to you. Thanks for your time too.